0: Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts...
1: I'm Sam Glover and I'm Aaron Street and this is episode 200. 200 the Lawyerist Podcast. Holy shit. I can't believe we've been doing this for almost four years. This show is part of the Legal Talk Network, and today we're talking with George Saharis about the state of solo and small law firm practice.
2: Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Smokeball, New Law Business Model, and Ruby Receptionist. We wouldn't be able to do the show without their support, so stay tuned,
1: and we'll tell you more about them later. How in the world have we done this for 200 episodes? Yeah, it's kind of amazing because we started it like hey maybe we should try podcasting yeah, yeah. and now it's four years later yeah no it's that's been awesome. nuts uh to celebrate our 200th episode yeah. Lindsay is putting together a video celebrating some of our favorite episodes of the past four years and a post with our team's favorite episodes of the past four years and so there's some best of highlights you can check out on Lawyerist right yeah, now. Go
2: find those on the front page of Lawyerist. And you know what? Thanks for listening for this whole time or part of the time or however much you've been listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've gotten a lot out of it. And I hope you share it with people you think might also be interested.
1: If you've actually listened to all 200 episodes, you should send us an email. Yeah. And we'll, we'll give you a thing. <laughs> What, how do they verify that? I don't know. We should we should have like a five question quiz. Yeah, of, we'll quiz you on the obscure like, stuff. In which episodes did we swear? Well, that yeah, <laughs> it's like 163 of them. Yeah, I want the total. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you've listened to all 200 episodes, wow. Sorry for the first 10 or 20. Yeah. And thank you. And let us know because we want to know who the podcast super fans are. For anyone who's listening, whatever, if there's something that you would like to hear, let us know about it. In the next 200 episodes? Yeah, I mean, it's
2: not like everything changes at 201. We are doing what we're doing. We're having, trying to have interesting conversations with lawyers and business leaders about how to run better practices and that's what we're going to keep on doing. But if there's
1: something in particular you'd like to hear, please let us know. We'd like to hear about it. Yes. Thank you for allowing us to make it this far. Thanks very much.
2: For today's episode, we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Diana Steepleton from Ruby Receptionists, and then we'll talk about the state of small law with George Saharis.
3: Hi, I'm Diana Steepleton with Ruby Receptionists. We're a live virtual receptionist service here in Portland, Oregon.
2: Hi, Diana. It's good to hear from you again.
3: Thanks, you too. So
2: you, uh, by you, I mean Ruby, just put out a new guide to call handling. And so you identified five keys to great call handling. And I, and I guess what we mean by that is answering the phone, right? How can you do a great job of bringing in those calls and then helping the person on the end of the line. Is that what you mean?
3: Yes, that is exactly what (laughs) we mean.
2: Cool. So it's the, you know, the hello law office, but better.
3: (laughs) (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. Hopefully better.
2: So number one is greet graciously. What do you mean by that? I assume that means not Hello, law office.
3: Correct. And it's not just the words you use, but it's really the tone you use. Um, often when you're deep in thought and you're, you know, you're, you're working on a brief or you're doing whatever it is you're doing and the phone rings, it's really an interruption. And if you answer it quickly without taking that deep breath of thinking, huh, this could be my next big client, or this could be my new best friend or you know, yeah. whoever you're thinking might be calling. You know, if you take that deep breath and you answer with this feeling of like, oh, I'm glad I'm getting this call, but you really set the tone of the call with a clear, warm introduction that lets them know that you're glad they called, that you tell them where they're calling. So yes, law office to some degree defines that, but Mm -hmm. um, not as well as actually saying the name of your firm and then offering to help, you know, good morning. You've reached ABC law office. How may I help you today? Kind of thing.
2: So uh, second is mind your manners. What does that mean?
3: That's really a a matter of, again, kind of word choice. So, you know, there's a big difference of saying, who are you versus may I have your name, please? Mm -hmm. There's even, and this is a little bit of a stray from manners, but it's, it's along the same vein of just always, you know, if someone asks you a question to rather than, you know, if they ask you if you can do something rather than saying, sure, you could say I'd be delighted to, mm-hmm. you know, it really creates a different conversation.
2: Yeah, for sure. Avoiding dead ends. How do you keep that from happening?
3: Yeah. So that's, that's something, it's one of my personal pet peeves. I, uh, I, it happened to me a couple of days ago. I called a business, I asked a question and the woman said, I don't know. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And <laughs> dead air, you know, and, and I took a deep breath and I said, well, gosh, is there anyone who, you know, we might be able to ask? Is there anyone else I could talk to? But so the idea of avoiding dead ends is if someone, I mean, invariably someone is going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to, mm-hmm. but there's a big difference between saying, I don't know and leaving it there or saying, oh, let me find out for you. Mm -hmm. Or the attorney would be the best person to answer that. Let me see if she's available. You know, anything like that, just not to to dead end the person, really. I can't think of another phrase for it.
2: It sounds like the sort of the conversational equivalent of when you give somebody a list of days and times that you could meet for lunch and they just respond with, I'm not available at any of those times.
3: Right, great. What am I supposed (laughs) to do with that?
2: (laughs) How about when you are? Yeah. Next is deflect with style. What does that mean?
3: So that's a that's a similar idea of avoiding dead ends so mm-hmm. it's if you aren't the person who can help the caller then try to send them off in the direction of someone who can. So, you know, saying that the attorney should be available soon and we'll get back to you kind of thing Mm -hmm. to graciously do it though. And again, to avoid the, you know, I'm just the receptionist. Sure. Can't help you.
2: You you want to position (laughs) yourself as someone who can help and is eager to help and will do it as soon as they're available and it's possible.
3: Yes. Gotcha.
2: Exactly. And finally, keep calm and carry on.
3: Yeah. So that's really about the idea that, you know, we all make mistakes, right? And sometimes on a call, you you won't have done exactly what you wanted to do or said exactly what you wanted to say. Um, and it just didn't go the way you wanted it to. That's okay. So most things can be smoothed over with some friendliness and mm-hmm. a sincere desire to help. So just be a real human being and try to connect with the caller in that way. And people are usually going to be OK with it. You know, an apology goes a long way. And just being a real human goes a long way. I think it also helps to
2: over communicate, doesn't it? Like to say what it is that is awkward and how, you know, how it makes you feel and that you can fix it or, or offering to fix it or whatever. Yes.
3: Right? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. This is not a call handling example, but it's it's been a running thing with my friend In me, that I am an iced tea drinker, and when I order my iced tea, I generally ask if I can have some sweetener with it. Mm -hmm. And generally, more often than not, the waiter or waitress comes back with my iced tea and no sweetener. (laughs) And so I then when they bring it, I say, oh, gosh, could I trouble you for some sweetener? And they say, sure. And they go off and then they don't come back with it. And the next time I see them, I ask <laughs> again. And, and and the thing is, there's a huge difference in the way I perceive it when the person says, oh, my gosh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And You know, I forgot or and they don't even have to be sorry. They're just that recognition of, oh, gosh, you've asked me for this twice already. You know, then all is forgiven from my mind. You know, right. I don't care that it took three askings to get it. I just Do want you to- kind of
2: want them to feel a little bit bad.
3: <laughs> I really wanna, I, no, I really just want to be recognized that I'm not losing my mind. Like I have yeah. continually asked you for this. And at some point I'd love you to bring it to me,
2: you know? So listeners, if you'd like to learn more and if you'd like to apply these strategies to your own call handling, you will be able to find this at callruby.com slash lawyerist pod. That's callruby.com slash lawyerist pod. And we'll obviously include that link in the show notes so you can click on it. Diana, thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
4: My name is George Saharis, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Clio.
2: Hey, George. Thanks for being with us again today.
4: Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, I should offer a little bit of a disclaimer here up front because it's unusual for us to have you on the podcast because Clio is and has been for a very long time an advertiser and supporter of Lawyerist. And so we don't usually invite advertisers to be on the core podcast, but Clio has done something really unique and I think uniquely valuable in the Legal Trends Report, And so I think it's important that you know that there's this potential conflict there, but I really, really want to talk to you about the Legal Trends Report. (laughs) So (laughs) this is what, year three, George?
4: Yes, that's right. This is our third year publishing the report.
2: And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the report came about since we haven't had a chance to talk much about it before.
4: Absolutely. We took a look around at the legal profession and realized that there wasn't really a great source of truth or a benchmark study that answered a lot of simple, basic questions, and how these basic questions came to our attention was actually through our support team at Clio. Mm-hmm. So they're used to receiving a lot of questions about our software and you know things related to to using it, but they started getting questions from folks who were asking completely different things, like, "Hey, how much should I charge?" or "What's what's an average rate for someone in my practice area who's just getting started in this location?" Mm-hmm. And they started to pass those inquiries along, and it kind of pointed to this gap as far as I could tell, uh, in data sources that were available to law firms, especially in the solo and small firm section of the marketplace.
2: Right. I mean, up to this point, like most of what we knew about anything about the legal profession was in the ABA's sort of big picture data or its annual legal tech survey, which we've always felt like is kind of skewed in weird directions. And that's about it.
4: Mm -hmm. And how they're working and profitability. But the things they had in common were, they were all self-reported information, which for the stats nerds out there, uh, which I hope there are many, uh, <laughs> are prone to something called social desirability bias. Right. So they can be inaccurate because it's kind of like when someone asks you how much you make, or how tall you are, or how much you weigh, there's this weird and totally human uh, thing that we do where we say the answer we think we should as opposed to what we probably know to be true Right. sometimes. Uh- <laughs> and so things that, that impact surveys what we realized was we were sitting on actual source data, right? We're one of the most commonly used tools and that created this store of data of what people are actually doing with their clients, how they were billing, that of course is their their property. And so if we were able to anonymize and aggregate it responsibly, we'd be in position to report overall high level trends that might inform people to make better decisions.
2: So this data is Clio user data. It is, that's right. And I, I will say you have anonymized and, and aggregated this responsibly as in every way that I can see. So just in case anybody's antenna goes up at that, it's not a big deal. What how, <laughs> how does the typical Clio user or the aggregate Clio user differ, do you think, from the legal market as a whole? Like what kind of biases might there be in the data just from the get-go?
4: Yeah, I mean, historically, we're certainly a product that has appealed most to solos and small firms. Over the last few years, we're seeing much more rapid adoption among mid-market firms. Mm-hmm. But I think definitely our, our data set would be unique in that it's got a lot of information on very small firms, which, of course, we know comprise the majority of the space. So it's kind of like a, a skew in the data set, but also kind of one of the, the black boxes in the legal industry. Right. It's very difficult to know right. uh, what's going on uh, at scale in a lot of those small firms
2: it immediately seems to me though like your user base is probably more tech savvy than average
4: that could be the case as well yeah obviously we expect folks who are ahead of the curve on the technology side to be the ones who have been using cloud technology the longest yeah so that could be a part of it as well
2: so that's at least worth keeping in mind when we say what the data says right um that we're probably talking about slightly more tech savvy lawyers and for what it's worth solo and small firm lawyers although you know you're you break it up by firm size anyway, which we would want to right. know. So exactly. Cool. So after the first year, you kind of started including some other data sources too to try and find out more about like survey data from consumers and stuff. So where does that other data come from?
4: Yeah, great question. So the the source data that we talked about is pretty high level, pretty broad, and it tells you a lot of the what's going on in the space, but not mm-hmm. a lot of the why. And so in subsequent years, we have accompanied the, the study with a couple of different surveys. So we do a survey of law firms and legal professionals that we run uh, in the lead up to publishing the report and typically target getting several thousand responses.
2: And those do, those include non-Clio users, right?
4: They do, that's right. Yeah. So a mix of people using Clio, but also lots of folks who aren't using Clio and folks from larger firms as well. And then we've also added a consumer survey where we uh, interview and survey a mix of folks who are part of the consuming public who have worked with a law firm and had a legal issue, but also those who haven't, and ask some questions in areas like, how do you look for a law firm and what are you looking for? Uh, And also, how did your experience go? What's your feedback on that for Mm -hmm. folks who have worked with the firm?
2: Now, I should say before we start digging into what the trends report actually says to us, um, you can get a copy of it at I think it's clio.com slash LTR.
4: That's right. Free and available to download for anybody.
2: Yep. And we'll include a link in the show notes. If you got here from the website, you've already seen that link. If you want to follow along, you led off the report. And by you, I mean, you know, aggregate Clio you, this is not just the work of one person, but the report leads off with how do law firms define success and set and measure goals? Why is that the, kind of the headline for the report this year? Yeah,
4: I have a great question. I think it's one of the things that we observe as one of the idiocy. Of, of law, it's it's actually quite difficult for folks to sit down and set goals and to differentiate goals from personal ones to ones on behalf of their clients, but then also for ones on behalf of their business. And so we wanted to set the tone by saying, hey, look, the way you become data driven and the reason to look at all this information in the first place is this old saying uh, in management science, started by Lord Kelvin back in the day and uh, reiterated <laughs> by Peter Drucker, what gets measured gets managed, right? Mm-hmm. This this whole act of setting goals and then comparing how you're doing against them is important because it's helps you uh, create change. And it's one of those things that is easy to lose sight of uh, in the recurring challenge, especially in a small legal practice where you're wearing all the hats and and doing all of the things. So yeah, we wanted to to lead with that and really get a sense of, hey, folks in legal, how, how do we set and measure goals?
2: And so what did you find about how law firms are defining success?
4: Yeah, I had a a little fun with that, both in how we uh, wrote it in the report, but also in how we kind of summarized it in our our recent Clio cloud conference. So basically, folks want to grow their business and site kind of increasing revenue and boosting firm efficiency is a couple of their top goals. But then of the choices we presented, the things that would drive more revenue kind of come in at the bottom. So (laughs) most folks said, I'd like (laughs) to increase revenue. But then when we said, hey, do you want to increase your billables or take on more work? You're
2: like nah, no nah. really. <laughs> not really
4: not really I like to make more revenue but I don't do any of the stuff that drives it right and so to me that's kind of like hey what's what's going on there right that's not intuitive and is another classic case of the the why like what you know right
2: I mean there's nothing wrong with wanting to increase your firm revenue that's after all what your business is all about but at the same time that's kind of if if that's what you're laser focused on like and you're not thinking about increasing the number of clients you serve or or increasing the productivity of your, your billables, like you're probably not going to get there.
4: <laughs> exactly, right? And the other thing that jumps out to me is, is it a case of, people want to do better on the revenue side, but the thought of taking on more work is like, ah, I, I can't do that, right? Are they feeling maxed out already? And is it maybe a case of time to be smarter versus time to just throw more work at the problem?
2: I guess if I put this in context of previous year's headlines, which was all about the you know, the six hours a day that lawyers are not getting paid for. So maybe in context, yeah, what, like how in the world am I going to grow my client base when uh, I'm already maxed out and I'm not even billing those six hours a day? Maybe, maybe that's what's going on there. Exactly. Hmm. Along with success, you talked about uh, setting and measuring goals, which I mean, maybe so this is in the survey data, I assume, right? These are questions you asked to those 2000 lawyers who are both Clio and non-Clio users. That's right. Okay, so this is survey data, not not built in user data. What did you find out there?
4: Something very interesting on setting and measuring more goals. We had this section where we asked folks, like, how satisfied are you with how you set and measure those goals and doing things around improving and getting better uh, at that stuff, and we found roughly around a quarter of firms report being highly satisfied with setting goals, measuring them, and performing against them. Hmm. So about 75% of folks say like, I'm not that happy with, with what I'm doing, but Does only Does that 46%? seem weird to you?
2: Because like they're your goals. Yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It does, right? It just shows more like people are like, I I don't even know, you know, how how to get started on this one, right? Like, I'm pretty clear on the substantive work of my practice, but I I don't know, am I setting the right goals? Like, there's definitely, you know, majority of folks in that category, but then only 43% saying, yeah, I do need to get better at data insights and reporting and and setting up all, again, all the things that would drive improvement uh, in those things. So very similar to the goal setting around increasing revenue, but kind of not looking at the things that would drive it as high uh, objectives, prioritized objectives for the firm.
2: Some of this is validating for me because you know we've been using our small firm scorecard for most of the last year and so we've got a similar amount we're in the same neighborhood on the number of responses that we've got and here we're asking lawyers to rate themselves on a number of things and we're finding the same things lawyers don't know how to measure success they don't have a strategy they're not setting goals those are some of the lowest self-scored things on the small firm scorecard so for what it's worth. I think our own data is supporting your data on that. That's right. So when you look at this and you try to extrapolate it, what what do you think that means for what lawyers need to be focused on?
4: Yeah, I think where it took our line and our train of thought at Clio and our data study this year was around kind of looking in two areas. So ostensibly, if you're not hitting your goals, there are improvements to be made in things like tools or even a mindset around being goal oriented, drive us in this direction of doing the data study in the first place, right? Like create the benchmark, put in people's minds for whatever stat they're looking for, and they can start to position against it, right? How am I doing? Am I positioned where I want to be? Things like the utilization rate that we reported in the past, the, the rate we reported, which came in at around 30% this year, is just a, a number, right? Mm-hmm. If that's what people were aiming for and they landed where they wanted, no problem. But if they expected to be at, you know, 60, 70, 80% utilization rate, and landed at 30, then that's a problem, right? So it really is about deciding where you wanna land and setting goals for yourself. And I think it's a, a step that's often vacant as you have reported. And I think you guys have discovered in your scorecard mm-hmm. as well from the thought process, especially for folks who are responsible to manage their own practices on the small end of the scale.
2: I, my hunch is that it's not so much about I'm unhappy with my goal setting, it's that I'm probably not doing it. Exactly. I mean, if your goal is increasing revenue, that's super vague. Or if it's, if it's something like, increasing firm revenue, that's a pretty vague goal. Um, (laughs) And it's hard to build a strategy or a plan for achieving it. So yeah, let's talk a bit about the previous headline, which was all of the time that lawyers aren't billing for, and really drilling down to what that means for lawyers effective hourly rates. Um, And maybe that's worth starting by talking about what realization utilization and collection rates are
4: yeah absolutely so the metrics uh, that we've defined are kind of our take and our definitions they, they can vary in the industry but they're a pretty sensible starting point so uh, we described three what we call kpis or key performance indicators in the report the first we call utilization rate so what that looks at is out of the available billable hours in the day how many of those hours are put toward billables in the first place so tracked as, as time or activities.
2: An important disclaimer, this works if you're flat fee or not, right? This is yeah. time for which you're doing work that you're being paid.
4: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so of the uh, the estimate we use is a total of eight hours per day. So in our survey, we asked folks, like, what's your typical workday? And by and large, the vast majority of respondents put in eight hours. Mm-hmm. So we use eight hours a day to, to create a statistical estimate and then look at, of those eight hours, how many get tracked and recorded as, as work? And we came in with, for, uh, for 2019, or 2018, pardon me, a utilization rate of 30%. The next step is what we're calling realization rate. So of those hours that you do track and record as potentially billable, how many of them end up on an invoice that a client sees? mm mm-hmm. That would be, you know, things you don't put on the invoice in the first place, or remove things that you discount. Uh, that crucial step of what I like to call almost the sticker shock, right? Like I can't yeah. put all this work on on the invoice before the client sees it. So we came in at a realization rate of eighty-one percent. The last step is a collection rate. So of the billables that end up obviously on the invoice or bill that the client sees, how much of that is paid? And we came in at a collection rate overall uh, of eighty-five percent.
2: So the big the big headline is that huge drop between. The eight-hour workday and the 2.4 hours that the average lawyer actually manages to get paid for yeah, or exactly. actually manages to do productive work for and then they only get paid for what 1.6 hours of it by the time they've collected the money exactly how do we think about that missing 5.6 hours because it the the right answer can't be that you get paid for all eight hours that you're in the office because literally nobody works that way
4: yeah i think that's a an unreasonable expectation for one to set, <laughs> but So yeah, we kind of look at that as our hypothesis would be one of two things. Either people don't have enough clients to drive enough of the work, or they have the clients that they need and the workload that they need, but they're doing too many non-billable things. Of course, option three would be a combination of, of both column A and column B. And I think depending on the practice, it can be either of those things. But I, I see solos and small firms as being particularly vulnerable to piece of doing all the things, right? If you think of all the hats you have to wear and all the work you have to do to run your own business, there are a lot of things that could be eating up your time that you don't eventually bill for uh, and don't provide client value.
2: I remember LegalZoom doing some really interesting surveying on this where they – They felt like, you know, a solo is devoting so much of their time to management, but then at a certain level, the firm is devoting so much of its time to a different level of management and that the optimal efficiencies seem to kick in around. I think it was somewhere between like 11 and 15 lawyers was about the size of firm where you start getting the advantages of efficiency of scale or the efficiencies of scale, um, without all that bloat of trying to grow the business and having to have the middle management and everything. So, yeah. But do you have a sense of where the right balance is? Like, did you discover firms where the typical lawyer was billing seven of eight hours? Or is, is it your feeling that we should probably be billing about half of our time? Like what, where should that balance fall?
4: Yeah. I mean, because the data is anonymized, we're not really able to look at individual firms.
5: Sure. Yeah.
4: That's why we would go to things like surveying and kind of see like where, where people report being more efficient. But we definitely saw a similar trend and have published in a, a previous year's report, uh, the utilization rate by firm size. So definitely saw an increase uh, in the same way that the uh, the study from LegalZoom suggests. Uh, we also saw an interesting dip uh, from five to nine attorneys. Hmm in the firm where things would suddenly hit this rocky patch and utilization would drop. Hmm. which we thought was really interesting we, we spoke to a few folks in the industry and saw that that tended to be this, this zone where when firms would start to grow gain momentum and get to five to ten a lot of them would actually fall apart yeah uh, and I think that this uh, declining utilization rate might be one of the uh, the factors so in general increasing the firm size uh, leads to greater efficiencies and I think it really does take off
2: but it sounds like there's a couple of plateaus which is borne out by I was just reading a, a, a book by a previous podcast guest um, where he says you know that between uh, 1 million and 10 million dollars in revenue somewhere in there and i think he really lasers in on like between one and three million dollars in revenue or something um Mm -hmm. that's where companies need to start installing multiple tiers of management and it and you usually have to uh you usually stop being as profitable during that time period and and maybe that's the same kind of thing for efficiency where you take a hit before you realize the benefit i don't know
4: Exactly. And you've got to have some staying power, right, financially to make it through uh, that transition.
2: I mean, I guess the functional effect of the fact that most lawyers are, quote, missing about two thirds of their workday is that the effective hourly rate, you know, what, what your pay rate can drop down. Did you calculate, like, what are the effect the average effective hourly rates that lawyers are making?
4: Yeah, we, we did. So we were able to break them down by commonly used practice areas in Clio, which there are 30. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to read them all out, but uh, had some fun with with using one example, comparing two very different practice areas. So we had uh, a breakout for hourly work only, uh, exclusive of flat fee work for bankruptcy law, mm-hmm. where we saw the kind of Posted rate be $335 per hour on average across uh, the continental United States. Bankruptcy had a 74% realization rate and a 71% collection rate. So by the time we got to the bottom of that, we basically have an effective hourly rate of $176. Hmm. If we compare folks who specialize in government law, one billable hour of work came in at a much lower $166 an hour at like the posted price, but realization was 96% and collection was 98%. So not much attrition as you go through working with the client base. And and it landed at $156 per hour. So you have two practice areas where one posts a rate that's almost more than double. But then when we get to the bottom of the funnel, is almost exactly the same on an hourly basis. And I think you know, if you were to present that to practitioners in those areas, they wouldn't think uh, that their rates would land in almost the same place. But that's the impact that these, yeah, that's these conversion rates in, in the funnel can have. And yeah, they, they definitely impact how much you're actually effectively charging once you get to the bottom of that process. But
2: I mean, I'm struck by... Making 156 bucks an hour is a really freaking good salary, (laughs) you know, like that's, that still ought to be good. But so many of the numbers about solo and small firms say that so many solo and small firms uh, are struggling. Right. I mean, how do I, do you have some thoughts about how we maybe jive? Like, you know, if your, your average personal injury lawyer is only making 91 bucks an hour, how do we square that with those scarier data, you know, like the bimodal salary distribution curve that says most lawyers are making are taking home before taxes like thirty-five
4: to $65,000? Yeah. Um, well, I think a couple of things, right? One is how many of those hours, again, are going toward billable work if you making 156 or 176 dollars an hour but only doing it for a couple of hours out of the eight hour workday that's a that's a major impact
2: oh so this is the effective hourly rates for the hours for which you're billing so it's if you exactly yeah. i see so if you if you divided that by 40 hours we'd be talking more like 20 bucks an hour yeah exactly gotcha okay
4: so that's how we land there uh a, a big step toward landing there and the other is don't forget like the the cost of running the business. Right.
2: Mm -hmm, For sure. You know what, George, we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and I've I've been slack on doing that because I've been engaged in this, but uh, (laughs) we'll be back in a few minutes uh, and we'll continue talking about some of the uh, attorney client communication disconnect issues that you uncovered this year. So we'll be back.
0: Smokeball practice management software exists to streamline small law firms and reduce the stress of running a small business with Smokeball. Your firm is much more organized, productive, and profitable meaning you and your staff can breathe easy with less stress. Visit smokeball.com slash lawyers today to learn more and book a demo. Like what you see? Lawyerist podcast listeners are eligible for 50% off onboarding. With Smokeball at your firm, it's less stress and more success. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There is a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million-dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six- and seven-figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage Program you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit LawPay.com slash lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay.
2: Okay, we're back. So, George, one of the things that you introduced in this 2018 report is a bunch of new survey information about the disconnect between what clients and lawyers expect out of different aspects of the relationship. Maybe you can give us the headline for that and then break down some of the most interesting things in there.
4: Yeah, definitely. So we wanted to deep dive into the area of how clients perceive working with law firms and how Mm -hmm. law firms are doing at meeting or exceeding client expectations. And kind of broke it into two phases. One is when folks are looking for lawyers, like they realize they've had a legal problem, and are looking to engage a law firm at the beginning of the process, and the other was once they have worked with a lawyer, how likely are they to, to recommend the service once they're done? The big inspiration for us there is in previous reports realizing that, you know, despite all the advertising media and, and ways in which lawyers can get out there and try to attract clients, this is still so overwhelmingly a referral driven business, right? The first step that most consumers take. And looking for a firm to help them with a legal problem is asking in close personal connection uh, for a referral. So if we can do things that drive the likelihood to recommend and drive those referrals, then we're we're making pretty solid progress toward filling up the day, getting more clients, and of course dealing with that utilization rate issue that, uh, that we discussed before the
2: break. Now when you say that, my brain immediately goes, okay, asking a friend means like, You know, I'm over to dinner at a friend's house or, um, you know, I'm doing a family get together. But then I think, okay, in this day and age, it might just as easily mean posting a request for a recommendation on Facebook. Am am I right to think that that's part of this or are you able to say,
4: okay, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely not, it doesn't have to be a face-to-face interaction. There's so many ways to collect recommendations and, and be pointed at the, the source of, of getting a service, and that would be one of them for sure.
2: Now, is that an area where you find that there's uh, a disconnect between what clients and lawyers think about how clients are actually finding lawyers versus how lawyers think they are?
4: Yeah, I think most lawyers know that referrals are really important and that mm-hmm. that's how folks would would look to find them. I, I think what's disconnected is almost more around what clients are experiencing and how they're perceiving Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that lawyers choose to do at really crucial times of that journey.
2: Say more about that.
4: So for example, yeah, for example, like we had this section on client's emotions versus lawyers' perception. Overall, it's never really typically good news, right? When people are looking for, for legal representation and yeah, advice. No, or a lot of the time it isn't, right? They're going through a moment of difficulty and they need help and kind of default to their limbic brain, right? Like they're scared and especially if they're going through using or working with a, a firm for the first time, it's also unfamiliar uh, as a process. And what we found was when we surveyed lawyers and clients and asked them the same question around when someone's looking to hire a lawyer, what are they feeling? There were some places where the responses from the firms matched up perfectly with what clients said, and some where there were like huge gaps. Hmm. So some examples, anxiety, control, annoyance, and anger. Like lawyers and clients felt pretty much on par in terms of how many expected a client to feel that pain as they went through the process of hiring for a lawyer. But then some disconnects, 45% of lawyers expected their clients to be confused while only 27% reported they were. Hmm. 17% of lawyers said that they expected their clients to experience a sense of relief, whereas 51% over half of clients said they experienced a sense of relief in looking for and hiring a lawyer, and 8% of lawyers said they expected their clients to feel frustration, and 40% of clients said that they felt (laughs) frustration.
2: Interesting. I, yeah, I, it, it makes sense. Um, but it is an example of like, look, being client centered in law practice means knowing your, knowing what your clients are thinking, getting inside their heads. So that's helpful.
4: And if you think about it, right, like if you are one of those folks looking to get referrals or to fill up the day with more clients, when people are, are in their version of a buying mood for legal services, they decided they need help. The tipping point is whether or not you can help them find that sense of relief versus leave frustrated and move on to another provider.
2: And are we saying something about the process of finding and hiring a lawyer here? Or are we saying something about the process of talking to the lawyer once you found them or all, all together?
4: Kind of all all of the above, yeah. yeah. We, we looked at what are the, the processes involved and we also looked at what are the reasons some people avoid working with a lawyer in the first place. Mm-hmm. So there are folks who realize they have a legal issue and just kind of don't deal with it uh, legally and uh, we also investigated kind of what, what are some of the drivers of doing that?
2: Hmm. Oh, what did you find there? Why people avoid lawyers?
4: Yeah, that one was interesting. So, so the uh, the highest we did like a it was called a driver analysis. So, a, a statistical study and analysis of both how many people answered a certain question, but then how likely feeling that way would be to drive avoiding a lawyer. Hmm. So, the top one was I enjoy handling legal issues myself. The uh, the DIY crowd, yeah, <laughs> as I like to say. But then the next few that I were all.
2: I enjoy it. I like that. Yeah. <laughs>
4: uh, so there's that. But only 22% of people responded yes to that. So a minority of, of respondents. We also had reasons like lawyers won't get you the outcome you want. Working with a lawyer seems overwhelming. And lawyers aren't necessary when dealing with legal problems. Hmm. But one of those that jumps out the most to me is working with a lawyer seems overwhelming. Yeah. Because it's a strong driver, but almost 40% of respondents said they believe that. Right. So there's this element of, ah, this is kind of overwhelming and it drives me away from otherwise giving a lawyer business that they could have. That's really and interesting. It's preventable, right? Like that's yeah. the other thing is some of these things, yeah, you want to do it yourself. I can't give practitioners advice on on really uh, changing people's minds on that one, but making the process a little less overwhelming. Going back to the whole thing of like setting goals and then measuring them and making progress toward them, I feel like that's a really rich area where there are a lot of simple things firms might consider doing to uh, to mitigate that.
2: Well, and if I, when I think about this, it's like so. What what does the process look like at this point, right? You're, it seems overwhelming because it honestly it is right. Like, how do you find a lawyer? There are a billion choices out there. How do you know one is right for you? How do you how do you drill down? to it, Um, especially if none of your friends or neighbors know somebody to refer you to or you're too embarrassed to bring it up to them. It's really freaking overwhelming. But imagine if, you know, as part of that, you found a website of a law firm or some marketing materials that... Uh, were really easy and accessible and reassuring and helped you understand that you were you had found the right person, you were in the right place. They weren't just trying to sell to you they actually you know reached a handout and gave you some help along the way before you even talked to them like those are some sorts of things that I think could really, Tamp down the overwhelmingness. I think.
4: Yeah, I think that, or I'd, I'd even go one simpler. Uh, in a yeah. previous, in the previous report, uh, sort of the last year's report, we surveyed firms on their response times to client inquiries. Oh yeah. So how are we doing it actually even getting back to people? And one of the things that just completely jumped off the page to me is. Most lawyers don't respond to client inquiries at all within the first 24 hours, and it's it's easy to see why, right? Like there are a lot of things that will tie up your time. You can be in court, you can be working with other clients. In the rest of the business world, though, people are spending millions and millions of dollars on optimizing their what they <laughs> right. call lead response time. Yeah, like when somebody comes to your website and they want to buy your stuff, you <laughs> have to have a team of people ready to like pounce. Yeah, because the moment they walk away, they're going to go to a competitive product or you know, their likelihood of becoming a client drastically, like actually exponentially decreases in a matter of minutes and certainly over the course of the first hour. Yeah. And if you look at our response times in legal, we're measuring them in days. And when you Then again, if all
2: of your competitors are equally bad, then-
4: <laughs> Yeah, well, there you go, right? Like no one's rattling the status quo, but if one competitor steps up and suddenly offers a responsiveness, remember, that's not necessarily um, totally solving the person's problem or anything. It's literally just answering their inquiry. Yeah. I think that's a a step that most firms can take and there are intelligent things we can do with technology tools or outsource services that I think are approachable if folks decide to measure and then manage, uh, how they do, uh, against that particular goal. And if we go back all the way back to, Hey, I'd like to increase revenue. It's a classic example for me of something folks can say, yeah, I can try doing that and see if it increases my revenue.
2: Yeah. If that's, if that's the ultimate number, that's an easy one to track. See if this changes it. Yeah. One, one of the, um, data points that I found most compelling was, or, or most interesting anyway, was the difference between how clients and lawyers want to receive different kinds of information. Yes. Say more about that.
4: So, um, yeah, definitely. So, I almost considered this part of the study a little bit mean, (laughs) but necessary. So, what we did was we asked uh, lawyers and clients both on how they expected to interact with each other and put them through eight questions. Uh, Examples would be how they expect to make appointments, uh, how they expect to sign and view documents, how they expect to make payments. Uh, So, we had eight questions in total. You know, I'll invite people to to check out the report and, and read all eight of them, but I thought I would highlight a couple where we saw the biggest gaps. So the choices we presented people were you could do something in person, by phone, by email, through a website slash online portal. And of course, uh, condense other responses into another section. And there were pretty few. One of the really, really standouts for me was how would you like to tell a lawyer all the facts or details of a situation? Yeah. Overwhelmingly, lawyers said, I think people should or want to do this. And remember, the question is, how do you think your clients prefer to do this? Not how would you want them to do it? But how do you think your clients prefer to do this? Fifty one percent of lawyers said by email and thirty nine percent of lawyers said by phone.
2: Which is amazing to me because phone is not a is not a a majority response from consumers for any of these questions.
4: No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Definitely not. But you know, I think what a lot of the listeners are thinking right now is it's going to be like overwhelmingly online or I don't want to talk no, to you. Like yeah. get ready because it's not right. Um, over 70% of consumers said they wanted to explain the facts and details of their situation in person. Yeah. I go back to this whole idea of like relief versus frustration. And I'm going through a bit of a crisis here, whatever the legal problem might be. I need to look at the white eyes and I need probably human empathy around Someone's got my back here. Can you help me? I need to explain myself in person. And when we compared this between millennial respondents and older generations, we actually saw exactly the same pattern. Like millennials were no Thank you, like that's what
2: I wanted to see because I know people are just going, no, 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 probably not the millennials, absolutely the millennials. Yeah, they were not
4: looking for a YouTube channel. They wanted someone to tell them it was gonna be okay. And they wanted to meet with people in person. That's awesome. So that jumped out to me as, as a big one. And if you think about like, how do you make this less overwhelming or even match up a bit more with what people expect, that could be a crucial step to optimize for I know in-person interactions can be costly and lead to interruptions but that's a step that's uh, that definitely jumped out to me
2: Well I it's one of these things where you know I've read some studies of you know how much information is lost over the phone yeah, because of all, or, or in text, especially like we, we have so much bandwidth to take in information when we're face to face with somebody. And it comes in, in the form of, um, you know, your, your body language, the, the tone, um, the way your eyes are looking, um, which is, you know, why you should be thinking about, do you have a laptop in front of you while you're talking to your client? But, but just like the, the communication is so much more full face to face in the same room than it could ever be over an email.
4: Exactly. And, you know, another thing for me is I always joke about the robot lawyer apocalypse, right? Like (laughs) we read Suskin, we see the end of lawyers. We're all worried that machines are going to be giving legal advice instead of people. But, you know, as far as we can see, folks still want to get help and work with a person as part of this process. They don't want it to be faceless, but... If it is faceless or not lined up with what they want, then they leave having a frustrated experience versus the sense of relief. Um, And we saw something similar in how people want to learn about the legal aspects of their case. So obviously, like getting something explained to them around, okay, here's the the meat of the issue, the the legal aspects of the case. 44% of lawyers said, again, by phone, and 44% of lawyers said by email. Over 55% of respondents on the consumer side said they wanted to do that step in person too. These were the two crucial elements of this kind of end-to-end client journey that we present where of all the things people want to do these steps in person when they work with their firm. And the reason they're important is that satisfaction here doesn't only mean that their case goes well, but that they're more likely to make that referral. Yeah right? Like if someone comes on Facebook and says, what's your recommendation? If you've nailed steps like these, they're going to get you that next case and additional referral business. um, And that this statistically drives their likelihood to do that.
2: I mean, one of the things when I'm looking at this page of the report, which has a bunch of different types of interactions and how consumers and lawyers perceive it. I mean, you can just erase the, the lawyer side because that if you're building a client centered firm, that part, that side of it doesn't even matter. But what I'm struck by is there are some clear preferences, but there are huge chunks where you know, talking about the facts or details of the situation. Yeah, 70% of consumers want to do it in person, but 18% are happy doing it over the phone and 7% want to do it over an email. Right. So it says to me, like, this is a way, the, the recognition here isn't, okay, I'm moving it all to in-person consultations because if you make me come to your office and I don't want to, I'm just as unhappy as if you insisted on a phone call. Right. So it exactly. It's you can have a preference, but it feels like the takeaway should be, Offering alternatives right down to a website or online portal (laughs) or video chat or phone or email or, you know, saying, here's how I normally do it, but I'm willing to do it in any of these other ways. Just click the box or tell me how to do it or whatever. So,
4: yeah. And, you know, it also segues nicely into this more advanced and almost like experimental question we asked or looked at in the report. For people who are going through a legal issue for not their first time. So they've been through at least one legal issue in the past and are doing it again. They actually showed more likelihood of considering alternatives to meeting in person, Hmm. which I thought was interesting. So we asked them, like, would you be open to trying things like a virtual law firm? Or uh, would you like to proceed without ever really meeting your lawyer in person? A few kind of you know, some of the more forward-thinking stuff.
2: Maybe when you're more comfortable with the process here.
4: Exactly that. Like when you're more comfortable with the process, you're more likely to try alternatives as well.
2: Hmm. That's interesting.
4: So it kind of tells me that like people have preferences. You're very right that just because there's a majority falling in one category, we shouldn't offer flexibility in how people interact, but also that clients can be educated and learn about working with a firm and change their behaviors too, which is another thing that I don't think a lot of firms think about doing. right, yeah. I think many of them do, but that's another area where if you are seeing some preference among your client base that's really driving a lot of brain damage in how you practice, that's also an opportunity where you could consider alternatives and folks who have worked with you uh, might be open to, to trying different things.
2: So maybe we should close gradually by talking about uh, the section in the report where you identify some quick wins, some easy ways for lawyers to really move the ball on client service.
4: Yeah, that's a, a great place for us to to wind down. So A big one for me goes back to our earlier point of what gets measured gets managed. A standout thing to me was that most law firms don't systematically ask their clients for feedback in terms of how you're doing, right? Like in in terms of how you're uh, doing versus these expectations that we talked about, honestly, an easy first step is use something like a survey or or what we chose to, to highlight in the report was something called net promoter score. So these are easy surveys that you can send. You can do them in person or by, e- by email, and they ask one question, like how likely are you to recommend my service on a scale of one to 10? Uh, and they have a, a comment section where folks can, can leave you some kind of you know written feedback. Start there, yeah. right? That's such a, a easy win in terms of maybe your process isn't broken. Maybe your clients are feeling a sense of relief versus frustration, right? That's where you start is figuring out, am I where I want to be? And do I see an opportunity to improve? I think collecting that feedback is is a... Pretty straightforward first step.
2: So I have a follow up question about that. I mean, one like absolutely, I think lawyers should be asking that, and preferably asking it at least once during the representation when you still have a chance to correct it for that client. But George, I'm curious. So like, I we talk about Net Promoter Score a bunch. I think most lawyers should be using it, but I'm wondering if if it's still we should still think of it as effective because like I get I don't know. Five Net Promoter Score emails a week now. Right, um, for every company that I do business with, it's become such a thing that it's just like nonstop. Everybody wants feedback all the time from me, and I'm like, ah, screw you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, do do we still think survey it's effective? Fatigue. Yeah, I have survey fatigue. I have net promoter score fatigue at this point.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would fall in a category of folks who are probably getting a lot more surveys than, than the average person. Maybe. Yeah. Um, you're probably signed up for a lot of like tech tools and surveys and services that ask for feedback pretty aggressively um, in early adopters of of doing that kind of thing. But by and large, I don't think that most folks would be surveyed out. However, um, there could be other ways of doing it too. Like we give NPS as one example, but there are other things like a a customer satisfaction survey or something that's called a, a customer effort score or CES in the industry. And they're all kind of the same idea. Like you just ask for a quick piece of feedback, keep it super short. Don't make it this super long questionnaire uh, and, and get a pulse, right? How are you feeling? Yeah. And the idea is try to kind of observe patterns over time. Like if you're trying stuff, improving the experience, trying to make it less overwhelming, spending a little bit more time in person in key steps, are people's perceptions changing or different from those who, who didn't do that with you? So if people are feeling survey fatigue, maybe, you know, find a different, uh, <laughs> a different way to ask them for feedback. But I actually think most people will be pleasantly surprised to have their firm uh, ask them for feedback. And the other thing is like, don't, Get in a negative headspace, right? Yeah. Look at this feedback as information. If people aren't happy or have suggestions for improvement, as like liquid gold. It's exactly your competitive advantage and informs you on like what is manageable and you can fix or improve, and what isn't. As opposed to kind of having a a limbic brain, you know, threat response uh, when when people give the feedback. (laughs) It's hard for all of (laughs) us. But in my opinion, it could turn if you're able to do that, to like hear the feedback and then iterate based on it, you're miles ahead of, of your competition. Uh,
2: one of the other quick wins that you cite is online payments, which probably doesn't deserve a lot of our time just because it's such a no-brainer. Uh, I don't know anybody who – I can't even find my checkbook right now. I don't think so. If, <laughs> if you sent me a bill and you required me to pay it by check, it would be a long time before you got paid. <laughs> or I'd forget about it. So that seems like a no-brainer. Um, what's another quick one?
4: rate at 85. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> yeah.
2: What's another quick win that you could offer?
4: So I think another is trying to simplify the inquiry process through automation. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of back and forth that can be pretty transactional as part of just collecting basic information from the client, and I think there are a lot of great tools out there that can help with this inquiry and initial step where people can feel kind of like responded to or heard, or it can make it easier for you to get the info you need from folks, and then uh, get back to them and be responsive. So definitely try to automate as much of your uh, inquiry process as you can. What
2: about on communications? Is there a a tip that you have for lawyers changing the way they think about that going forward, apart from just printing out that page, erasing all the lawyer preferences and setting some new expectations?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think this whole aspect of of finding how people want to consume the information and then being flexible to them is, is pretty key. There are going to be clients who are strongly prefer having something like an online portal log in and check for progress or updates or look at their documents that way and for them like 100 percent point them in that direction minimizes interruptions makes it easy makes them feel connected and also in control of when they'll replace that phone call or email to you where they want updates with just logging into a, a portal that can help them and for folks who, who prefer other methods like try to try to find what works for them um, i mentioned kind of concentrating in-person time when it's most valuable from the client's perspective but then also veering away from when it's not valuable um, as a potential efficiency that I think a lot of folks can introduce and all of that has to do with how and where you're exchanging information with folks.
2: So let me see if I can tie things up here. So I think um, if you're listening and if you are already setting goals and, and you are sympathetic to the way that we talk about things at Lawyerist, then um, then obviously you probably already have the legal trends report and you, you understand why it's interesting if you don't fall into that category and you're that means you're probably one of these lawyers who have said that you define your success around firm revenue but you're not necessarily happy with how that's going this kind of data is where those answers are for you. And there's more in the report. We've really just scratched the surface, but we've tried to pull out some of the most interesting things. Um, it's worth getting. Like I said, the link is in the show notes. Is at Clio.com slash LTR. I think digging through there is some of probably some of the answers for why your firm revenue isn't increasing in the way that you hope. And using that data can help move you forward. The other resource I'd give to you is use the small firm scorecard on our site. It's also free. It will also help you measure where you need to go to be successful. And I think it will help out. George, thanks so much for being with us today and talking about the Legal Trends Report. Thank you for doing it and keep up the good work.
4: Thanks, Sam. Pleasure to be here.